All right, this morning I thought it would be nice if we took just a little bit of a break from 1 Samuel. By the way, we've only got two sermons to go in 1 Samuel, two sermons remaining. But as we uh, ordain and install the officers in the church, I thought it would be good for us to consider one of the passages in the New Testament that helps us to understand and frame what we are doing today. And so I've chosen uh, the first part of Paul's letter to Titus to help us out with that. In uh, the portion of the reading that I'm going to be reading for us in just a moment, we, we see Paul giving instructions to Titus, whom we could call uh, his, his co-laborer or uh, a pastor or a church planter uh, or uh, one who is sent for the establishment of the churches there, a, a, a missionary, if you will. Paul's giving instructions into the further establishment of the church in Crete, and one of the first things that Titus should do is to recognize and to establish the leadership of the church. It's a very young church that exists there, a new church that exists there, and so Paul gives him these instructions. Here then, this portion of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. I'm going to read for us today, verses 4 through 9. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Let's pray together. Great God in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for instructions like this and the way that you have used passages like this and your guidance through your word and by your spirit to help the church throughout the millennia to know how we ought to structure ourselves and what we ought to look for in officers who would govern and lead us in your church. Thank you for your mercy towards us in giving us this word and we pray that today you would help us to take it into our lives and hearts and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I have a one-word sermon for us today, and unsurprisingly, the one-word sermon for us today comes, the one word comes from the text that I just read for us, and this is the only time in all of, uh, in all of the Bible where this particular word is used. It's, it's used outside of the Bible in Greek literature, but this is the only time in the Bible, and if you would like to uh, impress your friends, that's called a hapax legomenon, when a word is used only one time in a particular uh, book. And so that's what we've got before us today. In context, 
the word is one of the qualifications for elders that Paul has just listed there for Titus as he gets ready to appoint them in Crete. And so since this is a qualification for elders, and this is one of the words that Paul uses for that qualification, and since we are ordaining, in fact, and installing one ruling elder this morning. Nick, I think this means that all of this sermon is for you, brother. <laughs> no pressure at all, but it's all kind of focused on uh, you this morning. In reality, of course, the, the word that I'm about to use describes both a, a quality and an aspiration for elders, but I think we'll see quickly how it applies to deacons and to every one of us as well. So the word that I'm speaking of is found in verse 8, just for context. Uh, verse 7, uh, Paul there provided a list, if you will, of vices and said, of course, that these vices ought not to characterize those who would serve as an elder, as an overseer in the church. And then in verse 8, he provides us with a list of virtues and says that these, in fact, are the things that should characterize one who would serve in the church. And the one word that I want to draw our attention to this morning is in verse 8, a lover of good. As elders, as deacons, as members of the body of Christ, as a church, as families in the church of Christ, as individuals, as children of God, we should be lovers of good. Now, you will, of course, have noted that a lover of good is, in fact, four words. And lovers of good, if you want to put it in a plural, is, of course, three words. But in the Greek, in the original, it is one it is one word, philagathos. Now, that's my second big word of the day. Please understand that if I use a Greek word, which I do very rarely, please understand that I am trying to impress no one, impress no one with my knowledge of Greek. My, my mind is a befuddled amalgam of about five foreign languages that I've studied somewhat over the years. It can't impress anyone. I can't understand it myself, but I do enjoy periodically when we get to look at a word like this because sometimes the picture of it and just remembering of it can help us to see how an idea comes together. So our word today is philagathos. And just to give you an easy word, way to remember it to, to this morning, think of two names. Think of the name Phil and the name Agatha. Okay, put those two things together, Phil and Agatha, Philagathos is our word this morning. So the first part of that word, Phil uh, or Philos, means friend or beloved. Uh, it is, uh, the, the verbal form of it is phileo, uh, which you're probably familiar with, one of those Greek words that uh, people know. It means to love, okay? to love. That's where we get, of course, Philadelphia. And I can use this word in particular because it's not surprising, it's not unknown to us to hear that sound. So phil is the first part of our word. And then the second part of the word is the word agathos. And agathos just means good. Okay, so you now put those two things together and you've got one word for, if you need to translate it into English, a lover of good. And so one can imagine 
that Titus is getting ready to go on this mission, or Titus has got the mission, and he's looking for some instruction from Paul, and, and he, he queries, what kind of men should I install into the leadership of this church? And Paul's answer to him is, Titus, you should put in the leadership of the church men who are lovers of good. Lovers of good. Why that quality? Why is that one of the, there's, there's many obviously here, but why that quality that men should be lovers of good? And I think the answer to that is important, and I think the answer to it immediately shows us how relevant this is for all of us. And the answer to the question of why that quality in particular is listed here along with the others is that's what all of God's people should be. All of God's people should in fact be lovers of good. It's a major theme in this letter of Titus, as Paul writes it. I don't know if you've got your Bibles or just looking at your bulletins, but just to show you real quickly, in chapter 2, at the end of it, in verse 14, we read that the intention of the Lord was to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In chapter 3, verse 1, he wants his people to be ready for every good works. In verse 8 of chapter 3, he says God is preparing a people and he wants those people to be devoted to good works. And then towards the end of it, it's on the front of your bulletin this morning, Titus 3.14, this exhortation from Paul to Titus, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Men who lead the church should be lovers of good. And the reason that they should be lovers of good is so that they can exemplify and embody that which God wants all of us to be. We're all to be lovers of good, philagathos. And if we were to take it one step back and say, well, why does God want us all to be lovers of good? The answer is, that's what God is. That's what God is. God loves what is good. And so then we, his people, made in his image, likewise ought to love that which is good. All right, now for the purpose then of kind of digging into this a little bit today, what I'd like to do is take our one word in Greek, it's two parts, and I'd like to divide it and talk about each term for just a moment. The first being lover. Uh, Nicholas, uh, Pat and Nick, God wants you to be a lover. Service to God is not, first of all, a function, a role, a duty, an an office, a responsibility. It is rather, in the first place, a matter of the heart. That's what it is. That's what service in the church is. I'm going to go back and forth with family sometimes here. Your family, your families, do not need you in the first place to be an effective manager, a financial provider, a teacher, an organizer, a protector, a lawnmower, or whatever the other things are that you do in your home. Your family does not need you in the first place to be those things. In fact, you might be able to hire out many of those things that could be done for your family had you enough money. But no, in the first place, your family needs you to be a lover. Now, as a lover, 
You may do and will do many good things, but you are to do the good things that you do in love. Now, in the church, each of you will do many good things. Each of you have done many good things. You have opened up the church early in the morning. You have stayed after others have left and cleaned up the church. You've locked the church. You've mowed the lawn of the church. You've decorated the church for Christmas. You've carried packages from the church down to Colonial Neighborhood Council. You have done many good things. You've been in meetings. You will be in more meetings. You've wrestled with the budget. Reminder, elders and deacons, we've got a budget meeting this Tuesday evening once again to try and wrestle through and work through the budget for 2021. You will do many good things in the church, but make no mistake, we need you to be a lover. We need you to be a lover before you do these things and as you do these things. Your heart is more important to us than your competencies. Your heart, that's what we need. More than anything you will be able to do for us. I put Micah 6.8 on the front of the bulletin this morning as one would expect and we'll come back to it not only now but another time in the sermon as well. But Micah 6.8 says to us, do justice. And that's good, doing justice is good. But it says, love mercy. It doesn't simply say to us, do mercy. It says, love it. God doesn't want his elders or his deacons or his people merely going through the mechanics of mercy or, or the forms of felicity as if those things done in a particular way would be honoring and glorifying to him and helpful to others. He wants us as lovers. And he wants us to be lovers because he himself is a lover. What we do, our call that we have is derivative. Our love is derivative. It flows from God himself. He is the original. Before any of the stones of an old church building were laid in this particular place, before our great-grandparents thought about having our grandparents, our grandparents thought about having our parents, our parents thought about having us before any of those things took place, before anything was created, God was a lover. Within the Trinity, there was love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If his two great commandments are as we know them to be, love God and love neighbor, then it nearly goes without saying that our greatest identity, quality, and aspiration is that we should be lovers. Nicholas, Pat, Nick, God commands the affection of your heart. God wants nothing less than the affection of your heart in the roles that he is giving you to play and to serve in this church. We the people of Christ the King need the affection of your heart. We need you to have affectionate hearts as you minister among us.
But of course, love is not a helium-filled balloon drifting about with the wind. Love wants to hold on something, onto something, and love itself wants to be held. Love needs an object. Love needs attachment to something specific. And so our word here is that we should be lovers of good. Not just lovers, but lovers of good, which begs the question, right? What is good? What is good? If I'm supposed to love what is good, then tell me what is good. Now, let me, let me give a little bit of an answer to that question this morning. But what I'd like to do is start with the negative. If you've got your Bibles with you or if you happen to be looking at your Bibles on your phone right now, you can go back one page to, uh, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, which I'll read just a mo- in just a moment for us. For sinners living in this bent world, there is a problem with love. It sounds all really good to talk about love and uh, to preach about love, but there's a problem with love and with our hearts and with our affections. Namely, our love is disorderly. Our love is a disordered love. It keeps attaching itself to the wrong object and then loving in the wrong way or to the wrong degree. Our love, naturally speaking, is decidedly bent. It is decidedly misshapen. And so Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, writes to him a warning about the state of love and the state of the heart. Let me just read for us the first four verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, that's a serious list of vices that I just read for us. Of course, it concludes with Paul saying, listen, what we should be most of all is a lover of God. And the reason I wanted to bring that up to us in particular is because each of the words that I just read that sounded like lovers of something are are structured in exactly the same way as our word today. So when it says lovers of God, it's a combination word, fill God. Okay, lovers of God, just like ours is lovers of good. Paul wants these people to be lovers of God, but they're not. Instead, they are these opposite things that he describes here. Fill self, lovers of self. Fill money, lovers of money. And where he says not lovers of good, that's actually, again, one word. That's ah, philagathos, not lovers of good. And then the last one in the passage before us is fill pleasure. Lovers of pleasure. Augustine is the church's great guide in this whole discussion of loves and their disorderly nature. Augustine writes this in City of God, this is true of everything created. Though it is good, it can be loved in the right way or in the wrong way. 
in the right way when proper order is kept, in the wrong way when that order is upset. And he continues with, here it seems to me a brief and true definition of virtue is rightly ordered love. God wants elders in the church, deacons in the church, and all of us in the church to be lovers of that which is good in proper order. So that then takes us back to the question, say, okay, okay, so what is good? If those things aren't good, if the loving of self and the loving of pleasure, if those things aren't good, what is good? Telling us to love what is good is great, but how are we to comprehend that? How do you get your arms around loving what is good when God has created a world of good? Paul says that everything created by God is good. So what's good? Well, obviously, let's go back for a moment to Micah 6.8, to the verse that's on the front of your bulletins. He has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. What is that? What is good? To do justice, which is an action of doing good, to love mercy, which is an affection of doing good, to walk in humility, a disposition or an attitude relating to good. So Micah 6.8 gives us a, a way to understand this is what is good. Do these things. Feel this way. Have this disposition as you go about doing these good things. Where else could we find what is good? Well, I think the most logical place that we would look for what is good is early in the service to the Ten Commandments, right? If you want to know what is good and what is right and what the Lord requires of you, then look at the Ten Commandments. Understand the law of God as it reveals the person of God, and we will see in that that it's good to love God, the first table of the law, right, the first four commandments, and it is good to love others, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and the commandments show us how to do that. There are numerous lists of virtues in the New Testament, including the one in our passage today in verse 8, that help us to see what is good, but Philippians 4.8 comes to mind, right? Whatever is true, we should be lovers of truth, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, then think about those things. Do those things. Put those kinds of things into practice. That is good. As one writer puts it, the call to love what is good is a devotion to all that is best. That ought to characterize all of us, and in particular, officers in the church. A devotion to all that is best. Psalm 119, verse 96 says this. It instructs us that God's commands are exceedingly broad. And thus this call to love what is good is, I think, a wonderfully spacious roomy command and quality 
that God gives us. It's, it's a spacious command in that it allows for all of the unique ways that God has created us, all of the unique gifts and all of the unique talents that he's given to us as a church to recognize the good in the creation that God has given to us and to apply it and to love what is good. A call to be a lover of good then provides us with scope for the imagination to think through what is good after God. But when we choose to get married, okay, loving others is a good command, right? To love others is a good thing. When we choose to get married, once we make that choice, we don't love all people the same after that. And we don't have an even love for everybody once we choose to get married. Because if we did, we would in fact be unloving. It would be disorderly if we had the same love for everyone. No. When you choose to get married, you have a particular love for your spouse, a person who gets your special attention. Officers of the church, and particularly you men who are being ordained today. In a world of good to love, in a world of good to do, there are many great things for you to do that are good. You can garden and you can paint and you can read and you can make music and tomorrow or the next day you can shovel your elderly neighbor's driveway. You can do lots of good. In a world in need of good, officers of the church, one woman gets your particular attention. God has chosen you in a particular way to care for his bride, for the church of Jesus Christ. Now that is not to the exclusion of all other loves, but this day as you come and have hands laid on you, elected by this congregation, recognizing the work of God and the spirit of God and the call of God in your life, there is a sense to which you are being committed in particular to focus your love, to prioritize the love that God has called you for that which is good. You're not supposed to love just people in general anymore. You're supposed to love the church. And, and you're not even supposed to love just the church, like the church around the world or the church in general or the Holy Catholic Church. You are called particularly to love this church, to love these people who are around you right now. You're called to love us in a special and in a particular way. Be a lover of good and as such, Love the church to which Christ is calling you to serve. She is the apple of his eye and must become the apple of yours as well. Now let me conclude this with a warning and with a provision. I think most people would quickly agree that being philagathos, being a lover of good, is good. Right? It sounds good. I think even if I, if I preach this sermon out in the world somewhere, someone could say, yes, that's great. Everybody should be a lover of good. I think even non-Christians say, could say, yes, everybody should be a lover of good. We agree with that. Now, what is good 
<laughs> the actual definition of good, there'd be a lot of difference there, and probably difference in what we mean by love as well. But nevertheless, just as a word, be a lover of good, it sounds nice, it sounds so easy, right? Love good, do good, be good, thumbs up, amen, got it, super, thank you. Not so fast. It would be nice to think. I would enjoy thinking this. It would be nice to think that all I need is to tell myself or to have someone tell me, be a lover of good and all would be well. But here's the problem. And I'm going to put the, prob the problem as succinctly, as succinctly as I can using the words of scripture. Here's the problem. When I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. I don't do the good I want. For I know, why don't I do it? That nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Romans 7. Be warned, officers and all, that efforts to love what is good will always be met with a counteroffer. And the counteroffer is always, every single time, the easier path. Easier than loving what is good is loving yourself. Easier than loving what is good is loving money or pleasure or anything else. The counteroffer is strong and easy. Being a lover of good simply isn't a matter of your will. Our wills are too weak. We need something far stronger. What we need in order to be a lover of that which is good is nothing less than the glorious, powerful resurrection from the dead of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who in shedding his blood and dying upon the cross and being buried, suffering death, and then rising again, he is the one who has forgiven us for all of the times when we were aphologathos. Not lovers of good or not saying it so pleasantly, for all of the times when we were evil. For all of the times when we have been evil, that's what he has forgiven of us. And he is the one who has credited to our account all of his goodness. All of that which is good about him credited now to you so that in him we are declared to be, and we typically say righteous, we are, typic we are declared to be good in him. That it can be said of us because of the work of Jesus Christ who has now forgiven us of the penalty of sin and delivered us from the power of sin as well. That is to say that now he has granted to us the authority to live as the children of God and to be able to do, to will, that which is good. And he's given to us his spirit. And it is the spirit of God that is at work within us that enables us to be a lover, to love, for the fruit of the spirit is love, and then all of those other good things that follow after that. You love because of the work of the Spirit of God in you. And the Spirit of God also provides the object. Love this. Love this because this is good. 
and the Spirit authors and describes that for us in the word that is set before us. We are not mere moralists for virtuous good. May it never be that we are mere moralists for virtuous good. No, no, no. We're the children of God. We are children of the beloved one who is good, loved by the one who is good, that we might in him become lovers of good. And so to be a lover of good, we must be loved by the one who is good. So, Nicholas and Patrick and Nicholas, that's what we need you to lead us in. You need to be lovers of good, lovers of God, lovers of us, and lead us into doing the same. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we need you. It is well and good for us to say that we should be lovers of good. You know these hearts. You know these lives of ours. You know how far fall, we fall short of those things. Help us, Lord. Help us to love what you love, to delight in what you delight in, to call good what you call good, to recognize it as such, to call evil, evil, and that which is good, good. And help each of these men to do that as well. And we pray this in your name.